To our dear Wellness Couch listeners, we are sending you all our love during these unprecedented times. Now is the time to appreciate what community really is all about. And on the back of our wellness base camps in Geelong and Camden being postponed, we've decided to run a virtual experience that anyone can attend. It's called Crisis to Confidence. Right now, the world faces five major challenges. The first one, fear and anxiety. So Kim Morrison will present Uncertainty and Love. The second one is social isolation. So Marcus Pierce is going to talk about how to build community during these difficult times. The third is mental and emotional despair. So Brett Hill will talk about how to develop resilience. The fourth is financial uncertainty. So Jason Witten will talk about creating financial security. And the fifth is a challenged immunity. So Cindy O'Meara will share how to boost our immunity during these times. Crisis to Confidence will be broadcast live on Saturday, April 4. And if you can't make it, you'll receive lifetime access. To register and for all the details, go to thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com. Thank you, Wellness Cow Tribe. We love you and send our virtual hugs and kisses. Are you passionate about health and nutrition? Then check out the Nutrition Academy. They offer the most comprehensive, innovative, and transparent health and nutrition educational resource on the planet. They strive to separate health misinformation from reality. They give their students the resources and skill sets to think critically about what they read and learn. So you can use the power of research to make better decisions for yourself, your family, and the people you serve. The Nutrition Academy have kindly offered all listeners a discount for this course, so you are able to try it out for yourself with a saving of $50. Just use the code TNN50 at thenutrition.academy or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 268 of The Real Food Real, Ali and I help you answer the question, am I fat adapted? You will learn the significance of the dual fuel system and why, no matter how lean you are, you still have adequate fuel on board, provided you can access it. We discuss blood sugar control and your meal-to-meal windows, 
managing cravings, overnight fast, manipulating your training and racing fueling strategies, and so much more. So we're here today to talk about some of those signs that you're becoming or you've become fat adapted. So at The Natural Nutritionist, we, we work a lot with individuals on how to, how to teach that fat adaptation or teach your body how to effectively utilize fat for fuel. But often the question we get asked is, well, how do I know if I'm there? Like, how do I know if I'm fat adapted? So this chat today is all about that. Um, and hopefully through hearing us talk about these signs, you can sort of figure out how far along the journey you are. So, Steph, do you want to perhaps start with looking at, you know, what is fat adaptation? So for those that haven't perhaps read so much on the website or listened to us talk before, they can understand what that is. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important to set the scene. So what we need to understand is that we've essentially got an option to burn sugar for fuel, which is what we look at predominantly in Western cultures when we've certainly followed the food pyramid and or been given more conventional sports fueling guidelines. And that profile looks like, you know, a reliance on carbohydrate and a, an internal store of, let's say, around numbers 2,000 calories, right? So it's a fairly limited tank and we sort of refer to that as, as the petrol. And then, of course, we've got another option, which is being able to burn fat for fuel. In the same analogy, it's that diesel tank. Now, most people, regardless of how lean they are, which is an important point I'll come back to, but regardless of how lean they are, they have hundreds of thousands of calories available to burn if they can access it. So being fat adapted is being able to access this diesel tank, which is essentially an unlimited supply. Now, one of the questions I get is, you know, I'm 8% body fat, I've got no fat, I'm super lean, you know, how can I burn fat? I've got none. I'm like, but you've always got some. Like 8% is still a couple of kilos, which is where we get close to that 100,000, if not more, depending on your overall body weight, of course. It's a function of that. So what's interesting about fat adaptation, though, is we actually call it a dual fuel system. And what that means is that you can actually use both. When you're over here burning sugar, you've got one option and that's it. And that's why, you know, through a lot of people's experiences, they notice lots of energy peaks and troughs during the day and then hitting the wall, which we'll talk more about today, um, because they've only got that one option, right? But when you're fat adapted and you've got the ability to tap into your fat stores, you can also use sugar. You can also use muscle glycogen, which is important for periods of high intensity, certainly on race day. So we love that concept of the dual fuel system because one of the other arguments we often get about burning fat is oh, I'll get slow, I'll lose my top end. And let me tell you if that happens and you're doing it incorrectly and hopefully we can help iron out the creases for you, you definitely should have that dual fuel system. So for endurance athletes, mostly aerobic, which is fat burning, which is that diesel, and then much smaller amounts of anaerobic, glycolytic, using glycogen, which is that obviously that alternate energy system. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that explanation that you give, especially this like visual of the dual fuel tank, you know, having that ability to burn petrol when you need it the most, but really being able to use that diesel as that like underlying, like constantly accessible fuel source. I think also one of the 
one of the one of the ways to explain it that often really hits home for people is well, it's the it's the sheer mass. You know, when you look at our ability to store glycogen, you know, even the most well trained athlete has got that ability to store like maybe up to you know, 1,500 calories worth of energy in the form of stored muscle glycogen. But on the flip side, when you look at the ability to store fat, uh, you know, even that that lean athlete, you know, that 60-kilogram male with 10 kilos of body fat, like they've got like, yeah, over 60,000 calories worth of energy in the form of stored body fat to utilize. And you take that same athlete and presume like, okay, maybe they're burning, well, let's say um, 750 calories worth of energy an hour. If they're predominantly a sugar burner, so they're predominantly only able to use that petrol, well, they've only got two hours of activity up up their sleeve that they can do before they run the risk of hitting the wall or, you know, experiencing that, that dreaded nutritional bonk. But if they can tap into that fat, tap into that diesel fuel, then they'll extend the capacity to train because, you know, that 750 calories an hour that they're burning will be coming from some of that stored body fat and not tapping into that petrol tank. I love that because it's just like sheer math and it makes it really simple to get your head around. It's totally just maths. And I think the light bulb goes off for a lot of people when they understand, all right, I've got two hours, what happens after that? Like we've absolutely got to then rely on the exogenous or the food sources or beverage sources of carbohydrate, but we cannot put in 750 calories of that per hour. And not that we need to replace 100%, don't get me wrong, but it, it's the effort to try to do that that causes a lot of the issues. You know, everyone's been to an Ironman on race day and wondered why the hell people are throwing up on the side of the course or in the bushes with their pants around their ankles. And a lot of the time it's because they're just trying to put so much in which their digestive capacity can't tolerate when they're at rest, let alone when they're racing with that, that yeah. competition between blood flow and resources between the gut and the heart, legs and, you know, working muscles, of course, the, the lungs and the working muscles, of course. So, you know, that's that's where a lot of people have that light bulb moment where they understand what's been going wrong. For anyone that's doing more than two hours, it's, it's pretty clear that being able to access that dual fuel system has a million advantages. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's yeah, there's no way that we get people to re- replenish 750 calories, you know, in the form of exogenous carbohydrates in the course of an event. <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely don't try. Um, but it's not even half of that that we can tolerate. Like 300 calories, 350 calories per hour is still really challenging to tolerate, isn't it? So, you know, our goal with our athletes is to try and get them down to you know, 120 calories or maybe even a little bit less than that in a race day situation. Um, That'd be a for one a female of the primary athlete, just to clarify. <laughs> yeah, I work with a lot of females. But, you know, from that primary perspective of wanting to reduce that risk of GI distress um, over the course of the event, because of those competing priorities, you know, our, our working body is, is not prioritising digestion when we're, you know, cycling for hours on end or running it at high intensity. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's an important point to understand that the conventional guidelines, which are often that 300 calories an hour or do the maths on the one gram per kilogram body weight. So, 
you know, that 60 kilogram male example that you gave before would be told to do 60 grams of, of carbohydrates an hour times that by four, that's your 240 calories an hour. And then obviously if you're a little bit heavier, you get closer towards that 300. What about a hundred kilogram athlete with, you know, they are racing Ironman. So that's, there's so much wrong with those conventional guidelines and it's not about training your gut to handle so much or to be able to tolerate mm. that because it just constantly causes that potential and for a lot of people that GI distress that we so hear so much about in endurance sports but it's so costly that it's going to slow you down. You're putting all the blood and the resources into the gut. It doesn't make sense. Like you're not doing a race, a half Ironman or even a half marathon, whatever it might be to eat you're out there to you know obviously enjoy yourself and perform and hit some big goals and it, the food should be quite complimentary not this whole big you know picnic basket that you're needing to carry yeah yeah yeah. and like i hope there is people listening that like there are some light bulbs going off because all too often i speak with athletes or i see them out racing who are just putting up with the digestive discomfort like it's just something that almost is like part and parcel with race day uh, you know, I'm in the bushes going to the toilet multiple times during the course of the run or I just have to work through the stitches that I've got. And it's like, it doesn't have to be. It really shouldn't be. Look at your fueling strategy, 100%. For sure. Yeah, I totally agree. But obviously that fueling strategy can't re- can't be manipulated. You can't go from that, uh, let's use these round numbers like that, um, that reliance on 300 calories an hour and halve that without doing the groundwork um, beforehand from a day-to-day nutrition standpoint. So what are some of the signs that that groundwork is working? I think that's what, that's what we're, we're here to talk about because you don't want to go into race day blindly halving the amount of energy you're consuming, um, not knowing whether you're ready for that or not. So obviously there are some great signs before we get there that your fueling strategy is ready for some manipulation. Yeah, for sure. Like we always say, like you don't build a house from the roof. So you want to set those foundations first so that when we get to race day, we're ready. So what I will say firstly, um, we will get to some signs um, because there are quite a few that you can track almost immediately. But what I will say is that initially it can be a little bit rocky. So bear with me Mm. because it's important to understand what might happen or certainly what might explain your experience if you're already on the journey. So there's that concept, right, where you're most likely a sugar-burning athlete and you're relying on your petrol. Then you pull out the culprits, the refined carbohydrates, the sugars, um, and it's essentially like you're parking that car on the side of the road with no petrol. And it takes about four, maybe up to seven days to be able to access that diesel engine. So during that time, while you're switching over to starting to look, understand and for your body to be able to tap into that sort of 60 to many hundreds of thousands of calories is what we call the metabolic gray zone. So unfortunately for some people, if they're coming off a lot of refined carbohydrates, a lot of sugar, and they've essentially gone to the deep end with like LCHF with lowering their carbs and increasing their healthy fats, yeah, it can be quite rough because it's also that detoxification Sugar is one of the most addictive drugs that you know known to man. So we have to unpack that and realize that you know we do need to go through that to get out the other mm-hmm. side and to be able to start to burn fat and then experience the flow-on effects and, and the benefits that we're going to 
teach you guys. So it's just understanding that that doesn't mean it's not working for you. Unfortunately, if your metabolic gray zone is really rough, then it's a reflection of how you weren't looking after yourself and the kinds of foods that you were eating that weren't serving your metabolic profile, which is about your health today, your performance and your longevity because what you eat is the biggest decision that you make around controlling those parameters. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the notice is that grey zone is not like your ticket to give up and to, you know, go back to eating the the predominantly carbohydrate diet, if not the processed carbohydrate rich diet. It's that reminder or that sign that, okay, you've you've actually got a bit more work to do and just um progress through it don't be afraid just progress through it and you will come out the other side feeling very very differently yeah and we talk to our clients about this so they understand what's going on so they've got that personalized support but if you're doing it on your own Mm. and you don't know what's going on it can be really overwhelming Mm. you can feel quite ordinary so you know just really top line some of the things to make sure you're doing um, is yeah changing your training around so maybe you have a rest day or you you pull your low intensity training forwards like don't even bother doing anything high intensity any efforts or any testing because you're you're just going to feel rubbish anyway and the results are going to be skewed so there's you know looking at your training program in conjunction to when you start the journey um, and then all the basics like making sure that you're drinking a lot of water you're you know you're getting an early night so just do yourself a favor and, and and maybe even look at the time that you're starting rather than just jumping in the deep end and then you know essentially drowning for a few days in the diary um i also love recommending some electrolytes during that time as well so like like you said sleep super important hydration is incredibly important but also making sure that there's some electrolytes there in that hydration so that um you're making up for a, like a loss of electrolytes through um a, a loss of water retention in that in that gray zone period for some people that can make all the difference yeah you're right like a lot of people do know about that concept where you switch into LCHF, like the biggest thing that you've cut out is refined carbohydrates. And in Australia, they're our salt-containing foods. Like obviously it's table salt. We wouldn't really call them foods, but they contain a lot of the salt that we eat. So when we switch over, uh, we can actually dump a lot of salt and that can really throw out our electrolyte balance. So absolutely adding some back in, whether that's starting with, you know, fresh lemon and sea salt in your water, or we recommend Noon because it's stevia sweetened and the, that more of a commercial brand that doesn't have artificial sweeteners that you can purchase, you know, online or at your local sort of bike or triathlon store. Yeah, yeah. So are you ready to talk about what that first sign might be that we can look forward to after perhaps the four to seven days of grey zone? Yeah, so everyone's a little bit different, but... What always comes back to me from a client who's starting the journey is that they're finally not hungry, like that they're finally satiated for often the first time in their life because these are people that are, most of us have done some degree of calorie counting, low fat, which always looks like high carb, Western food pyramids, cereal, sandwiches, pasta, lots of fruit, like not that I have an issue with fruit but too much is too much, and Mm. we're hungry. We're bound by our appetite. We have the peaks and troughs, that blood sugar roller coaster that I touched on earlier. And we're just like counting down the minutes, like counting down until we can eat again. And often we are eating every two hours as a result. So LCHF, when you build your plate with plant proteins, quality fats, and get really clever with what carbs you are eating and when you are eating them, um, 
most people are like finally feeling nourished and getting three, four or more hours out of a meal, which usually extends with increasing adaptation. And we'll talk a little bit more about fasting shortly, but yeah, it's that appetite control, that meal to meal satiety, which is so life-changing for most. Yeah, it, it seriously is. I mean, I, I remember, you know, going back on my own personal journey when I was first going through this fat adaptation and transitioning from a, a low-fat, low-calorie diet. Like, the, the difference in the way that you feel is quite profound because if you haven't experienced satiety before, you just think that it's normal to want to eat every two to three hours. And, you know, I understand the, the, the look on, on people's faces when you explain that through building your LCHF plate, you can, you can go five hours. Like, they don't believe you and they're scared. They're scared to potentially go five hours without eating. But when you do build your plate like that for the first time, when you do try a, a TNN smoothie for the first time, it, it's, not a, it's not a challenge. It's not like, oh, my God, I've got to get these four to five hours. It's just, a, it's just natural. You know, physiology does not demand that you, you eat again. So it's, it's a natural sort of four to five hours of satiety and, and really freeing. Yeah, that first conversation though, you know, like you said, they look at you like you've got two heads because all they know is that incessant hunger and the thought of four hours would be really overwhelming. So there's a lot of trust Mm -hmm. involved when you first start because you've got to experience it yourself to believe that it's actually physically possible. So there's a lot of trust that we sort of set up. But, yeah, it really is understanding that, you're not sitting there counting down the four hours, like you're literally not hungry. So depending on where you're at and all the variables like for the individual, you know, many people are then sort of having lunch because they feel they have to. And there is that time mm. that we walk between under eating because we want to make sure that we're still getting, you know, nutrients in. And that's super important. But, um, yeah, like I think four hours is usually where people land quite comfortably when they build their mm. plate properly and then beyond there, some people really find that five works better. And, and as I said, that's a function of your fat adaptation. I don't think five is compulsory, but a lot of the time, again, it happens as, a, as that natural extension of your metabolism changing. And while we get pretty amazing benefits in the first 12 weeks, we know that it goes on for another two years. So you're going to notice things change and evolve with your metabolic changes and obviously yeah, how that rolls out in your life and in relation to your training and your racing calendar. Yeah, yeah. And let's not also forget the role that, like, psyche plays when it comes to snacking and eating. So, you know, for those people that do transition to an LCHS plate and are expecting the the four or five hours of satiety but don't get it, you know, they're still snacking between meals appreciate the role that like years and years and years of habitual snacking will play into your eating behaviors and habits so um be kind to yourself and if you're not getting those four to five hours of satiety like just really stop and ask yourself the question when you're coming to snack do i need this right now or is it like a lifelong habit that's really playing out here that i need to be very conscious of and ask myself the true question like do i need to eat or is it habit Totally. You know, I'm having the, that experience myself now, like total segue. But, um, you know, people always ask me, like, am I fasting, right? And we'll talk more about fasting. But I'm not at the moment because I've been preparing for pregnancy, pregnant, 
and nursing, right? So my life looks really different. But what it has given me is that appreciation of what my clients are going through. Not that I'm starting again, but, you know, I'm coming out of, out of a really different meal schedule, different metabolic profile. And so as a practitioner, that's really, I love that. I love that I get to experience that and understand what my clients are going through because it was so long ago for me now, the first time that, you know, you do forget things. But, yeah, it is about yeah. really acknowledging habits because we are so programmable in, in both ways, so in that sort of more negative sense, um, but also in a matter of days we can create a new habit that we refine over the next sort of three to four weeks depending on what you believe in terms of duration. But, yeah, that's an interesting journey to go on. And, you know, in one of my online programs, um, the our two-week LCHF reset, in two weeks people are like really checking in with themselves and totally acknowledging that whether it is 10 or 3.30 or whatever time it is, that, yeah, that's just what my body does because it's what I've always done. So being able to um, stop, take a moment and, and check in makes a huge difference because otherwise we become quite mindless in our eating and that's a, that creates a whole host of issues including, you know, some digestive stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I often use this, like, it's not so much analogy, but this reminder of like um, physiology versus psychology. So through LCHF, you can get the physiology in check so that you're not wanting to snack constantly, but then you've got to make sure that the psychology piece is being taken care of. And yeah, that might take more than two weeks to unfold and, and really get to the bottom of. Well, um, some people, sorry, go on. No, you go. I'll come back to it. Some, some people like truthfully are, uh, decades of this relatively disordered relationship with food. Like I've, I've been there. Everyone knows my story. So I can relate hand on heart. And so that's really hard to unpack. That's not going to happen in four to seven days. That's not probably even going to happen in 12 weeks for some people. It might always be your journey. Like that's might, might be part of what you're here to teach others or, you know, who really understands the true purpose behind that. But yeah, like I think that's an important point to really acknowledge that it's going to take that commitment it also reminds me of, um, of things like not sleeping properly or having too much stress and how that impacts your fat adaptation. So it's not just your plate. Of course, what you eat is like one of, if not the most important decision that we make, but we've got to look holistically at the whole house because stress will look like glucose in the bloodstream, which will cancel fat adaptation Poor sleep is a similar kind of physiology. So, yeah, we have to acknowledge what might be our barriers. And, yes, a lot of the time it's up here. Mm, yeah, totally up here. And that's I love you mentioned the word consciousness. Like, you know, how often do we talk to people about the importance of a meditation practice that they do daily or deep breathing before they tuck into a meal? And, you know, it's not the five minutes of meditation that is just going to help, like, reduce cortisol levels and um, and potentially negate the impacts of of elevated cortisol on stress on fat burning capacity but it's that five minutes of meditation that's going to help you to become more conscious so help you to take that level of consciousness from those five minutes and take that into the rest of your day so you're not eating blindly you're not reaching for things unconsciously like i think we all will benefit from an additional level of consciousness throughout the day in everything that we do whether it's what we choose to eat or whether it's you know, whether we choose to look at someone when we're talking to them or acknowledge, you know, someone that's walking next to us on the street. So 
consciousness is super important for when it comes to eating. Mm, yeah, for sure. So meal-to-meal satiety, I think in line with that, obviously appetite control, but yeah, the flow and effect through even just one day is pretty incredible. So, you know, in our seminar, and um, I'll nearly always ask who experiences 3.30-itis just to get a sense of where people are at in the room and who might have already sort of become more fat adapted, but nearly always there's, you know, a dozen if not more hands raised and we think that's normal. We think it's just a part of life to crash and burn at 3.30, to need a nap, to need caffeine, to need sugar, whatever it might be. But what people like actually really love to understand is 3.30 is a function of your previous food choices, right? So you can completely remove that. You can completely get rid of that when you set up your day and control what you put on your plate rather than relying on quick, easy, short-acting carbohydrates, you know. So 3.30 is a function of what you choose. And, again, that's quite life-changing when you feel so different at this otherwise dangerous time of the day. Yeah. And, like, that 3.30-itis, that's coming about as a result of somebody sitting on that blood sugar roller coaster, yeah? So we use this analogy of, you know, this roller coaster taking off first thing in the morning. For, for many of us in the West, it does. If you're relying on a breakfast that is, you know, breakfast cereal and milk or banana strawberries and yogurt or toast with some sort of jam on top, like that carbohydrate-rich meal without a lot of quality fat or protein is going to cause that blood sugar to rise, the roller coaster to go up. And then this equal and opposite drop to take place a couple of hours later, which is when, you know, we're going for that mid-morning snack. But if you're on that roller coaster, you know, all day long, by 3.30, you are going to get 3.30-itis or it's going to coincide with cases of the hangries, which is when we get so hungry that we, we get angry and put those together, we get hangry. But, you know, the hangries, the 3.30-itis, it is a result of being on that blood sugar roller coaster. and so. When you embark on this process of fat adaptation, what you'll notice is that you've got much more stable energy as well. So not only do you avoid the hangries in the afternoon, but earlier in the day and throughout the day, you've got these beautiful stable energy levels because you're not up and down. You're not energy. Your energy is not like a direct response to what carbs you've taken in. So this beautiful stable energy is one of the things you might notice when fat adaptation is taking place. Um, you know, I, I was working with a client yesterday who just described it as like this mental acuity, like they could, they, they were in the zone at work. They weren't distracted by their energy levels or whether they needed to go and get a snack. They were actually far more tuned to what was going, going on and they just felt like steady. That was the, that was the, the word that they had. I feel steady. And that's great. Like, you know, let's, talk about like the day-to-day benefits for the individual um being more engaged and and not being so distracted by what you're eating and when you're eating that in itself is a great benefit and byproduct oh absolutely i think steady is a great word it's that blood sugar just that stability that everyone's craving that i think doesn't take too long like once let's say it is you know worst case result that your first seven days are pretty challenging as you pass that metabolic gray zone in that next week 
we've provided you're eating the right balance of your, you know, your obviously your plants, your proteins, your quality fats, like that should almost happen immediately. So if it's not, that's where you go back and look at your meal because everyone's quite different. Each day will be different. Each meal is potentially different. And so we keep the protein constant, but we can always increase your non-starchy veggies, add a little bit of teaspoon or so of fat extra. And that usually makes all the difference to get you to the four or five hours, depending on works with your schedule. And so, you know, just, yeah, it's not, it's not long at all until you feel that blood sugar control and, and that, that beautiful, just, yeah, steady day. I love that word. Yeah. And the, the longer you, like you experience the benefits of fat adaptation, the more sensitive you can become to what might be pushing you out. So, um, you know, like you said, like thinking about like what you've eaten previously on your plate, what you've put on your plate, and then also thinking, okay, well, um, I've, I've, I've sort of built my plate beautifully over the course of this day, but I'm still feeling a little bit snacky in the afternoon. What might that be? You know, did I get enough sleep last night? Have I been putting myself under um, extra pressure and I'm more stressed? Or, um, you know, have I refueled properly after my training session? Like you become really good at sort of triaging all of these possible triggers to get you back to that that state of 3.30-itis. Mm. Um, and it just means that you can, over time, start to stamp out what those causes of 330 artists might be oh absolutely i think it's really good to do that stock take whether it is daily or weekly to have a look at what your roadblocks are you know because yeah you might have dialed in your plate but if you're missing you know your seven and a half hours of sleep hello new mum like yeah the flow and effects just really different for your day so you know doing your best to to look at sleep hygiene and um recovery strategies of course is going to make things a lot more smooth for you yeah and that post-training recovery meal is really important to consider as well because you know we have to remember that if we're we're embarking on lchf it means lower carbohydrate not no carbohydrate so you've got to use the carbohydrate strategically to support training recovery but if you see lchf as nchf uh then you might wind up with you know the the blood sugar roller coaster and cases of the hangry mid afternoon. Yeah. But it's not because of LCHF, it's because of NCHF. It's because of your extremism, like, which is what we see a lot. Like, bless them, but triathletes are often A type, right? And so that can help them in so many ways. Like, it, it's a huge part of their success, right? But then if you're trying to put yourself in like what is keto or what a type 2 diabetic would need or someone with metabolic syndrome, like, yeah, like it's just not necessary to go that low. And, and keto is obviously a really big buzzword at the moment. And LCHF is a spectrum, which I love, but people find that hard to understand. Like we're so used to being a, given a prescription, eat this many calories per day, and it's, it's not the same with carbs. So it's about working out your carbohydrate tolerance. And obviously we can help you with that. Um, but just for round numbers, like if keto is 25 grams of carbs a day, you guys might be 100 or 150 grams of carbs a day. So it's so much more food. So it's really important to, to define things so that we understand exactly what our version of lower carbohydrate healthy fat is. And, yeah, for you to acknowledge that it, avoiding carbohydrates is to your detriment and it, it's the same conversation that we'll come back to when we get to fueling, you know, you've just got to keep your perspective and really understand what you need. And if you're more active, you can usually tolerate a bit more if you've 
already at a goal weight, if you've got no family history of type 2 or any of those more carbohydrate intolerant disorders, then, yeah, all signs point to tolerating a really reasonable amount of carbohydrate. So don't eat less. <laughs> eat what you need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. On this subject of A-type personalities and wanting to do things like harder, better, faster, stronger, is this ability to train in the fastest state? So obviously, or perhaps not, not obviously, but when you are going through the process of that adaptation and better able to tap into that diesel engine rather than just the petrol tank, you are going to be able to start training on an empty stomach, you know, go out in the morning at you know, 7 a.m. And, and carry out an aerobic training session without having to eat beforehand. And the, the better fat adapted you become, you know, the longer you might notice you're able to train for on that empty stomach. You know, we would usually expect for you to, you know, be able to get that 60-minute mark and then, you know, progress towards the two-hour mark that's a nice place to work towards for most people. But with those A-type personalities, we can see them trying to push the, push the limits a little bit and oh, extend yeah. that to our faster training session to, yeah, a three, four, five-hour faster training session. And it's almost like this, you know, this badge of honour to be able to go five hours faster. But, you know, really we're, we're not suggesting that you work towards that, you know, through your course of fat adaptation, work towards that you know, a, a 60 minute or 180 minute or 120 minute fasted session, but don't push too much beyond that because then you'll start to sort of go down the other side of the curve when it's not, you know, it's not working in your favour. Yeah, that, that became so cool online a few years ago to be that hero that could go for the longest or do an Ironman mm. on no carbs. I just disagree with that. I think if we break it down, we know that fat burns in a carbohydrate flame. So we actually need some carbohydrates coming through to continue to promote fatty acid oxidation. So having no carbs can actually switch off that as well and then you'll be in trouble. And then nearly everyone who tries to do more than two and a half hours will have some kind of negative flow-on effect, right? So I had this conversation let's say it was maybe three weeks ago with an athlete who feels really good doing five hours. I'm like, okay, so you feel good during the session. What happens afterwards? Are you crashing and burning? Are you on the couch the rest of the day? Are you annihilating food and never being able to get Mm. satiated? Yes, yes, yes. So five hours is not serving you. It's not just about Mm. that session. It's about looking at, yeah, obviously how you feel afterwards, recovery, ongoing food choices, meal-to-meal windows as a result of tidy. So unpacking that and yeah, understanding that you can really elevate your performance by having the right amount of carbohydrate beyond about two hours, maybe two and a half, depending on, you know, if you're two years down the journey or an exception to the rule. But yeah, just being smart with it is my advice rather than trying mm. to be extremist because yeah. I've spent my life pulling people away from low fat pulling people away from keto, like trying to get them back into being a little bit more balanced and just being more smart or being smarter, ironically, to really understand your physiology and and work in your favour rather than trying to, um, you know, get that badge of honour or be able to post something on social media about what you've achieved. Yeah, push the limits. I mean, with that athlete, I think about like what's happening to their muscle mass? Are they, you know, are, are those five hours of fasted training, is that five hours meaning that there's, there's muscle wastage, you know, they're going to that catabolic state too frequently whereby they're not maintaining muscle mass. I don't know, I guess everybody's a little bit different in how they'll go, but 
well, I'd be That's interested. That's a little to... bit of a fear of mine, not so much triathletes, but definitely cyclists because we all know that, yeah. that cyclists have this kind of obsession with being as light as possible. So a lot of them are wanting to compromise muscle mass. Yeah, for that so benefit. In their, in their mind, that's what those five-hour sessions are capable of, but it's definitely not the right way to do it, especially when there are all those negative flow and effects. Like you're not a professional athlete. You need to function after a five-hour session. You probably have, you know, a family and kids or partners or jobs or all of the above. And so, yeah, we should be able to do our endurance love. We should be able to do that and complement our lifestyle for it to not be essentially like a full-time job where we're either so exhausted or really having to, yeah, like feel that way as a result of our choices. Yeah, that five-hour training session does not mean that the rest of the day is a write-off. You know, you should be able to get back up, you know, have a recovery meal, go out and hang out with your family or your friends and get on with the rest of the day rather than have to be on the couch and napping and treating it like you're almost hungover from the five-hour ride. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk about the fueling side of things because we've sort of identified that we don't want to be out in the extreme. You know, we don't want to do five-hour training sessions fasted and, and we don't want to have to, um, you know, consume an abundance of exogenous carbohydrate, which is potentially going to cause gastrointestinal distress or lead us um, to, to hitting the walls. We've got these ups and downs in energy levels. So let's talk about perhaps where the sweet spot is in terms of refueling and when we might look to refuel. Yes. Yeah, so this is during a session or after? Yeah, let's talk about during the session, like perhaps not too nuancy, but just some rough numbers around carbohydrate intake in, let's say, a training session beyond two hours for somebody that has been through, you know, been through the grey zone and is on their way to fat adaptation. Yeah, so if it's someone fairly new, like say they haven't been coming from the other end and doing 60 or 90 grams of carbs an hour, you've usually got a little bit more flexibility because they're not having to unlearn and, and totally change that metabolic profile, that reliance during training. So if it's someone that's fairly new, we have a bit more freedom to test how low they can go essentially and what they can tolerate. Mm. So, you know, might be between 30 and 40 grams of carbohydrates per hour as a, as a rough place to start. So that's your 120, which was the calories that you mentioned early, earlier, up to about the 160 mm. calories. So for some people, um, that might sound really low. So hear me out. It's about testing where you're at, right? If you always start high, you'll never understand your capacity. You'll never know where you actually sit because you'll always be pushing that, that sort of top level of consumption. So it's about testing what you can tolerate. And it's going to be different every day because the session's going to be different every day almost. So if you're a female, you might start on that 30 grams of carbohydrates, 120 calories, and then you'll do a bit of a debrief on your session. You know, you'll have a look at your session in, in, in terms of what parameters you're normally tracking, whether it's, you know, heart rate or pace or FTP. Then you'll look at your recovery, your meal-to-meal satiety, the flow and effect in those following couple of days, yeah? If, if all things are great, then you might do a number of other tests on that same 30 grams of carbs an hour. But if you felt like you were a little bit flat or you were starving after training, there's no reason why you can't test 40 grams of carbs per hour and do that for a month and then come back and look at 30 grams of carbohydrates per hour when you're more fat adapted because your metabolism is changing over that, 
that time, of course. So that can be done like in many different ways, obviously, and we won't go into detail around specific products today. Um, but as a general rule, I recommend liquids over solids to, in, you know, relatively um, moderate durations for that digestive capacity that we will always digest liquids far better than having to break down, you know, calories and carbohydrates and fats and proteins depending on what we're choosing, of course, but mostly liquids. Um, yeah. Males, not too dissimilar, but let's say um, 40 grams of carbohydrates, so 160 calories, and they can play around with that. Obviously, if you're a larger male, like if you're weighing 100 kilos or more, it's likely you'll need more than someone that weighs 60 kilos, so we might start you a little bit higher. And then the same thing applies to someone who's been doing like the 300 calories or that top end. Um, we want to bring them down. A lot of people are pretty ready to go, so often that they just they're willing to, to test a lot less and see how they go, yeah. especially early in the season. Um, an easy sort of long recovery ride where it is a great chance to experiment and and you know it's not an A session or an A race or anything like that. So yeah, maybe fifty grams of carbs an hour, but that's probably the um, the exception rather than the rule. But it's always just testing and refining and then acknowledging that as you get more fat, as you get fat adapted, you often need less, but not none. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I love also that you highlighted, you know, when we're trialing this, you know, we're not trialing the, the lower carbohydrate intake on, you know, the, the race of the season. You're trialing it in, you know, an upcoming, you know, two and a half hour, three hour session that allows you to just work it like a steady state intensity or intensity that you're capable of that day so pick the right session to go out and trial perhaps a lower carbohydrate intake for the first time yeah for sure it's definitely otherwise you regret it start to experiment mm. do you want to have a look um at overnight fasting periods and how that can be impacted by fat adaptation um, I wanted to look at it because I know that for some people who go through fat adaptation, I, I guess they're, if they're very used to getting up and eating first thing in the morning and very used to hearing that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, when they embark on LCHF and notice the benefits of fat adaptation, it's almost like they're not hungry in the morning, but they're caught between what they've been told for so long. But they almost feel like sometimes they have to keep eating first thing in the morning and they're like looking for, um, I guess, that, that acknowledgement that, no, it's okay, you don't have to eat first thing. Yeah, well, fasting so, fascinating. Go on. Mm, I was just going to say, so naturally that ability to extend the overnight fast without you even having to really push it is something that you might feel. Yeah, I think that's just a natural function of becoming fat adapted. And for some people, I notice that straight away. Others, it takes, you know, eight to 12 weeks and that's all good. But yeah, if you work out, right, let's say you've got a 12 hour window now. So you finish dinner at eight and you break your fast at 8am, roughly 12 hours. People, some people are 11, you know, thereabouts. Yeah, fat, fat adaptation means that you're not hungry often until mid morning. So that's where you can start to delay breakfast now it's not on a high intensity morning because we want to be refueling within the hour after those sessions but again the bulk of our sessions are aerobic or easy or recovery in nature and you don't actually have a strict recovery window which most people are quite surprised to hear right because 
everyone's been told they have to rush home and refuel within 30 minutes. And that's one of the myths I think is partly funded by, you know, industry like portable protein powders and things like that. Mm. Um, But, yeah, like when you're burning fat, there's no really strict recovery requirement. So for some people they feel great and all their recovery parameters and their following two days are very good when they delay their breakfast and it might look like a 13 or a 14-hour fast quite organically and then over time is where these people usually start to experiment with 16-8 to that 16-hour fast which obviously then gives you an eight-hour eating window in the one day. Now our males, the research is always on males when we look at things like fasting so usually they tolerate it quite well like many days of the week any of my um, postmenopausal women as well can usually tolerate more fasting. They often have a decreased appetite anyway, so it feels natural. It feels quite intuitive for them. But then, of course, I'm very strong in my opinion that females of menstrual cycle age should only be fasting a couple of days a week. Um, but, of course, if anything changes or your menstrual cycle starts to look like it's speaking to you and, and telling you that it's you know, not happy, essentially you're fasting too much. So you can use that menstrual cycle as your monthly report card to learn about if what you're doing and what you're experimenting is right for you or if you've taken it a little bit too far. Yeah, and this is where becoming really in tune with your body and listening to your body and not sort of turning a blind eye to the warning signs is really important because like like I sort of alluded to before, through fat adaptation, it's like this natural extension of the overnight fast. Yeah, so perhaps you're waking up in the morning and you're just not feeling as hungry as you usually would. So you you know you delay that breakfast by a couple of hours. I guess the the flip side of that is if you are like so hell bent on achieving that extended overnight fast that you progress to the 16 hours. And I'm speaking specifically about women here, but you progress to those 16 hours you know, before your body is ready for it, without listening to those cues of hunger, without paying attention to perhaps some changes in the the length of your your menstrual cycle, the duration of the bleed, your PMS symptoms and signs, you know, not paying attention to those things. And that's where that extension of the overnight fast, I guess like we've highlighted a couple of times in this conversation, it starts to become counterproductive as opposed to working in your favour. So you've just got to be so in tune with your body and what it's trying to tell you. And I think that's where, you know, if you need to work with someone one-on-one, do it. Like work with somebody one-on-one if you need that, I guess, that mirror or that sounding board to help you listen to the signs and signals before you're perhaps uh, able to do that for yourself. For sure. I think that's going to make a huge difference. And just take your time. Like you don't, Rome wasn't built in a day, like as cliche as it is, like take this as the journey and, and make gradual changes over the first eight to 12 weeks and really spend time, not only like educating yourself and understanding it so that you've got that sort of long-term approach because it's not just 12 weeks, <laughs> um, but then take your time and experiment and work out what works for you because there's always nuances, there's always that concept of, bio-individuality, which we talk about all the time. And so that that's essentially kind of up to you and then your practitioner to work with you to make sure that you just dial in everything and tick all the boxes rather than just, you know, downloading something off um, 
a calc- an online calculator that tells you how many calories to eat, for example, like they are the worst, just quietly. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and take your time is a really important one. Of all of the benefits we've talked about today in terms of blood sugar control and meal-to-meal satiety and being able to extend your overnight fast and being able to train up to two hours faster, like all of these, these benefits of fat adaptation, give it time. Don't expect them to all appear in the first 14 days. Give it that 12 weeks for, for these things to appear. And, yeah, like you've, like you've highlighted, sometimes it can take up to two years to, to fully create this, um, this sort of uh, fixed feeling of fat adaptation. Yeah, it's certainly a journey, but a very fun mm. one, one that every, like nearly everyone just can't even believe how life-changing it is because it's such a contrast mm. to what we've been told, how we've felt, and like we said before, that we've just lived that way, accepting that it was normal, not knowing there was yeah. a way. Yeah, and a fun one because like LCHF is not just about like what goes on your plate, you know, there's there's stress that's involved, there's sleep quality that's involved, there's mindfulness and consciousness that's involved. So it's like this journey not only of what to eat, but like listening to your body and understanding more holistically what is going to help you to thrive and be a better individual and of course a better athlete. Yeah, I love it. So much to learn and I think we'll be learning more with just more research, more studies being published now. This is so um not only like popular, but that we're really unpacking sort of where we've gone wrong and understanding, mm. you know, what the science and, and essentially who it's been funded by and just really learning about, you know, where, how we got to where we were and understanding more about how we can really look after our health, which I think is our number one priority. But for most of us, we've got that performance goal and then we obviously want to live long and have a great quality of life. And so, Everything that here that we teach you is beautiful and foundational for triathlon, but it has so many more benefits from a long-term point of view as well. Yeah, of course. You know, first first and foremostly, like your health has to be there. If your health is not there at the centre of it, then training goes out the window, productivity out the window, your ability to be an amazing family member, um, it'll really be affected. Yeah. Awesome. I've loved this. Cool conversation. Yeah. been so cool. Mm -hmm. So I hope you guys learned a lot and, yeah, we'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Deb. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favour? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.